0: Maybe seated. And as you're seated, if you will, open your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians, the book of 1 Thessalonians. Today begins a short series titled Ready and Waiting, the Message of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. It will be a short series, probably the shortest series, um, you know, the most mileage. Uh, per sermon so we'll do a whole sermon on one book we'll do a whole sermon on a second book and we'll be done so so two sermons and you'll have gone through two books of the Bible and the series will be done we're going to read through uh, by the time we're done this morning we'll have read through the entire book and it should be easy enough to follow along we'll generally work from one side of the book to the other so I'd encourage you to do that as we go but for now we'll read just the entirety of chapter one the entirety of chapter one but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Well, one way to get to know somebody is to listen for and to understand what they're waiting for. This can tell us quite a bit about a person's life, their aspirations, and their desires. One waits for a college acceptance letter. Another waits for a job or a job promotion. Still another for her husband to come home from military service overseas. Another waits for a wife, and still another waits for his wife to come home from the hospital. We wait for significant things like these. Often enough, we wait sometimes too eagerly for much much less significant things like the next episode of a TV show, the next video game, or the next gadget. And sometimes we wait for things that should never be. The next opportunity for promiscuous, sinful, sexual encounter. The next flattering comment compliment. All of these represent to one degree or another and for better for or for worse life shaping longings. The chapters in our life story can largely be mapped out by what we have waited for and how that went for us. What we spend our lives waiting for shapes our lives in the process. Well, in one sense, the letter of 1 Thessalonians marks the conclusion of a period of waiting for both Paul and his readers, the church at Thessalonica. Paul had visited Thessalonica on his second missionary journey around 49 or 50 AD. It was a brief stop. He was there one month and at most two months, but not likely more than that. God saved people and Paul instructed them in the faith, but due to persecution, Paul was in his own words, he was driven out. And given that he was driven out, given that it was because of persecution that they would also be enduring, and given that his time with them to instruct them in the faith was so brief, he was concerned. He was deeply concerned. Listen, listen to his words that fall out of his heart in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. When we could bear it no longer... We were willing to be left behind in Athens alone and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish you in your faith, exhort you in your faith. That no one be moved by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are destined for this for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Well, if you have ever bought the caricature that Paul was staid, stoic, stiff, merely doctrinal... Just read these ten verses again and underline all of the feeling words. Lots of feeling words here. Paul had lots of feelings and he talked about his feelings and he had lots of feelings, deep emotions, affections for this church. The church waited for contact from their much-loved Paul who had disappeared. And with Timothy's arrival, they received what they needed. The encouragement of word from Paul and the exhortation that they needed to continue growing. Paul waited for a report on the status of the church, and with Timothy's return, Paul was comforted and brimmed with joy and thanksgiving to God. This is the occasion for this letter. This is the occasion for this letter. But what explains the depth of the bond between the apostle and this church? They were only together a month or two months at most. Surely, some of that time that he was there, he was preaching the gospel, people were coming to faith. Paul's language is dripping with emotion, affection, and concern, and apparently it's mutual. It is as if they go way back, but in fact, they don't, so what explains this? Well, both for Paul and for this church, there is something that they together are waiting for that binds their hearts to one another, especially given the context of suffering together for the sake of Christ, and that is the return of Of Jesus Christ this is the framing perspective of the letter the horizon for all of life and all of life's circumstances the return of Jesus Christ we can see hints of this in the first chapter even if it's really only clear from a couple reads through the book the first the first hint we get is in the very first sentence after his initial greeting in verse 2 and 3 we give thanks to God for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, faith, hope, and love usually go in that order. Almost always in Paul. But here it's faith, love, and hope. I think that's for emphasis. He does the same thing in chapter 5. Faith, love, and hope. And hope is not vague wishfulness here, as it's often used uh, in, in everyday Uh, conversation. In in Christianity, in the New Testament, hope is a content word. It's a noun, not a verb. And it refers to the coming of Jesus. This is our hope, the coming of Jesus. The second hint is more vivid in Paul's summary of the report of their conversion. Verse 9, they report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What a cool summary! A cool summary of conversion. Watch those verbs: they turn from idols to serve the living God, to wait for the Son from heaven. And of course, our attention is on the third here. There are many things we do in coming to Christ. We believe in Him. We trust Him. We follow Him. We remember Him. We obey him, and we also wait for him. With these first Christians, we wait for the Son as well, God's eternal Son, who's in heaven, who will come from heaven. And that's where he is because he was raised bodily from the dead. It's interesting that this is the earliest of Paul's letters, and both the resurrection and the return of Christ are merely assumed here. It's 20 years after the resurrection. He's instructed them when he came through, And these are matters of basic Christian teaching that he assumes in the letter. As you may know, chapter 4 is one of the go to passages on the subject of Christ's return. We'll get there in time, and you'll recognize some of it if you're not familiar with it already. But what was not at first apparent to me a few weeks ago was apparent to me in preparing for this sermon. And that is, in everything else that Paul talks about in this letter, he circles back around to the return of Christ. That's why I say it's the perspective of the letter. It's the framing perspective of the letter. If you were to ask Paul, why would you write this letter? He'd say, to communicate my deep love for this church after having been reconnected and gotten the report. And to strengthen their vision of Christ's return. For their growth and readiness for it. The return of Jesus Christ is the reason for the bond between Paul and his readers and the framing perspective of this letter. And this morning, it may be just the thing that your Christianity needs. We may not even know it. You may not even know it. You may be spiritually lethargic or unmotivated. Maybe you're falling prey to sexual temptation, your mind is wandering. You're making yourself nervous. You're weak. You're weaker than you thought. You're straying in your thoughts. Maybe your fervency and urgency for sharing the gospel has waned and it's bugging you. You know it's not right. Something is wrong. Well, one diagnostic question is how often does your mind go to the coming of Christ? How often is your heart fixed on his appearing? Like a vision of the championship game that gives athletes resolve to eat right and endure a grueling training... Or a vision of a body on a surgery table gives the medical student endurance for late nights and hard exams. So, a vision of Christ's return will put into perspective every moment in this life for the Christian. And without it, uh, it should not surprise us that we would struggle. We would struggle in various ways. A life spent waiting for Christ's return is a life spent ready for Christ's return. And this is what we want to grow in together this morning. So what are we looking forward to exactly? What will happen when the Son of Heaven comes? Or to put it another way, in the title of our sermon today, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Well, in the form of encouragements, instruction, and prayers, I think Paul gives us five pretty clear answers to this question and each of them with life-shaping implications. So let's dive in. What are we waiting for? First, we're waiting for our deliverance from the wrath to come. We're waiting for our deliverance from the wrath to come. Paul has heard a great report about the church of the Thessalonians, and in 1, 9 through 10, he rehearses what he has heard, the content of the report. Let's read 9 and 10 again. They report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. To wait for the son from heaven whom God raised from the dead is to wait for deliverance from the wrath to come. Of course, one of the first steps in becoming a Christian is to Embrace the doctrine of the wrath of God. That's to embrace the doctrine of the holiness of God and the justice of God at the same time. And even the love of God, for God loves what is good. His wrath is a function even of his love and his holiness. And John the Baptist's intro to Jesus, the one where he says, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He goes on to say, His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Meet Jesus. And Jesus himself warns in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Hell, according to Jesus and scripture, will be eternal and it will be terrible and it will be just It's the personal wrath of God against us for our proud, unthankful, and personal persistent sin against Him. It's a sad thing, and it's a true thing. And it's not an embarrassing doctrine. It begins with the coming of Jesus Christ Himself at His coming in wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-3 says, You yourselves are, selves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. There's no Christianity without wrath, for there is no need for Christianity without wrath. This is what the cross is for. Which leads us to the second part of becoming a Christian. Believing that Jesus came in order to deliver us from this wrath. He came to deliver us from his very own wrath against sin. And that he can do this because he suffered death on a cross. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Whether we're alive or dead when he comes, we might live with him. With him This is what gripped this young church. It's this that gripped them. They were waiting for the coming of the Son from heaven, who was raised from the dead, that he might deliver them from the wrath to come. They believed this, and Paul was thrilled about it. But Paul wasn't just excited about the report about their faith, but about also about how that report came to him, from everywhere. Paul did not just rejoice that the Thessalonians had joined him in waiting for the Son of Heaven, but they also joined him in preaching about that day and living in a way that is ready for it. Notice that in verse 9 he he begins, "...they themselves report." Well, who reported? Backing up, let's read chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. "...and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit." so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul came believing, living out and preaching the gospel, and this young church imitated him at every point. Verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we have no need to say anything. Their witness was direct. The word of the Lord sounded forth from them. Who knows how far they got, but they were preaching the gospel. and It was also indirect. The word of their faith and their example had reached everywhere so that Paul had no need to say anything. Word got around. This may have something to do with the nature of the city itself. Strategic Thessalonica was a prominent city in the region, the capital of Macedonia, located in a strategic harbor. It's still there today, which says something about its strategic position. Their spreading was great news for Paul at many levels, including his own continuing work of the ministry. For where Paul would show up and preach the gospel, uh, that gospel would be known because of this church's work. Oh, yes, we've heard about this from the, of the church of Thessalonica. Did you hear about how they turned from idols to serve the living God and wait for his son from heaven? Well, wouldn't that make it easier? That's groundwork for church planting, a faithful witness. And it should be the case that if we're saved... People are going to hear about it because we're going to talk about it. It's how Christianity spreads. Words aren't flashy. They aren't expensive. They're hard. They're natural. It's organic. And it's easy. And it works. Notice that boldness is tied to the fact that salvation is a supernatural work. Backing up a few more verses, verse 4 and 5, For we know that he has chosen you. We know this because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. This is how they believed. This is how they believed in Christ's return. It would have been easy enough to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus only 20 years from the events. But the return of Christ wasn't a matter of historical record, but of promise. Do you realize that when we're preaching Christ and sharing the gospel and pleading with people to come to him, there are times when it may be helpful to present evidences for the empty tomb or the historical reliability of the biblical documents. But ultimately, we're asking people to believe some things that you can't can't, uh, taste, see, smell, touch, the return of Jesus, future wrath. It's a supernatural work to bring a human being to bow before this word and this God and take it all. And this church has done it. And so we trust the Holy Spirit as well. They believed and Paul says the Holy Spirit did that. So if we want to grow in our evangelism, want to grow in our evangelism, one way to do this is to grow in our vision of the return of Jesus and what he comes to do in delivering us from the wrath to come. That'll make for urgency. That'll make for seriousness. And that'll frame up our life. That'll squash fear of man. Squash fear of man. So what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? We're waiting for deliverance from the wrath to come. And a vision of Christ in this way shapes our evangelism. What else are we waiting for? Well, second, we are waiting for the successful completion of our work. The successful completion of our work. In most letters, as was customary at the time, Paul would spend a few verses or maybe a paragraph reflecting on his relationship with the reader, thanking God for them, uh, speaking encouragement to them, mentioning them in his prayers. We'll do this in almost all of his letters, if not all of them. Well, in this letter, the thanksgiving begins in verse 2, and we've read all the way through chapter 1. But it shows no sign of ending until the end of chapter 3. It's 60% of the letter is his reflection on their relationship together. And right in the middle of this, in chapter two, verse nine through 20, Paul reveals what is driving him, what is under it? when he asks, "For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our j- glory and joy. Paul's glory and joy at the return of Christ is there standing faithful with him. He says, "You're my hope." His own hope in the coming of Christ is bound up with them in their faith, and their faithfulness, in their hope. He can't imagine Christ's coming without them there. Sure he can, he doesn't want to. He says, you're my joy. He is going to be happy when Christ comes, in part, because they'll be there with him. And he says, you're my crown. And this is not royal imagery, but athletic imagery. They are his crown of victory, his prize of faith. They are his crown of They are his reward when Christ comes. But is Paul just saying this? Is he just saying this as a, it's like pastors speak, for you guys are just the best. I love you guys. Perhaps some in their affliction doubted Paul's sincerity, the genuineness of his ministry. No, it's not all talk for Paul. And he spends chapter 2 rehearsing, rehearsing the history of their relationship. We're going to work through it together. Paul reminds them that he ministered at great cost. Verse 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, know, we suffered at great cost. He reminds them that he ministered nonetheless with boldness. Verse 2. Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Boldness. Paul reminds them that he ministered with pure motives. This was not for self promotion or any other reason. Verse 3 through 6. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. He sure wasn't doing it for the money. He sure wasn't doing it for the fame. All of this should be clear from the history. He's just reminding them of this. He's reminding them of their history together to ensure them of the sincerity of his ministry. And it behooves the Christian minister to labor like Paul does, to be above reproach and beyond question in his motives. Paul reminds them that he ministered with the gentleness of a mother. Verse 7 through 8, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves Because you had become very dear to us. For Paul, this is not just professional work. It's not a paycheck for Paul, he was a tent maker. It's them, it's his life. Paul reminds them that he administered with conduct that was blameless for their sake. Verse 9 and 10. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Uh, I had a neat encounter with a a woman visiting our church a number of weeks ago. Maybe, Maybe she's here today. Um, she stopped me in the hall, a few questions about the church, and she goes, I, I need to ask you, are the men who lead the church men of integrity? I, I need to know this. How can I know? I'm guessing there's some history there. Maybe at a different place. That's a good question, isn't it? Are they godly? Are all the things we, we think about in looking for a church, this, dare I say it, is a thousand times more important and the music style. Let us lose all our great musicians and have me leading up here with godly leaders. Still got a great church. Still got a great church. Paul reminds them that he ministered with the firm instruction of a father in verse 11 and 12. For you know how like a father with his instruction we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. God who calls you into his own kingdom of glory. And having invested all of this in the lives of his people, Paul rejoices over their wholehearted acceptance of his ministry. Verse 13 through 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from the speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. And with all of this at background, as background, how did Paul feel about his being separated and driven out From this church, verse 17 and 20. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. That word torn could be translated orphaned. Think about that. All this family imagery is really helpful. He's deeply bonded to them. The separation from him was as a mother from her children, a father from his children. Persecuted for going to them, torn from them, and even, as he says, hindered by Satan from returning to them. And yet he, in verse 17, endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see them face to face. He'll use that expression twice in this letter. Paul is sincere sincere all the way down. We can assume that because he's taken such great length to say these things that he believed they needed to hear this. Whatever they may have thought happened with Paul, they were never out of sight, out of mind for him. He had them in his heart. And so Paul writes, "For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming is it not you? For you are our crown and jo- glory." Enjoy. I was in St. Louis about two weeks ago, and um, some of you may remember Mike McLaughlin. He was a pastor here in town. He's since moved to uh, St. Louis where he's preaching. I was visiting family, and we hooked up for coffee. So we went to a coffee house, and uh, the barista is that what you call a guy, Starbucks server? Do they have different names for guys and girls? I don't know. Um, so the, the guy behind there who gives me my drink. Um, familiar face, we lock eyes, I remembered him. He remembered me. little backstory: I was a youth pastor in the St. Louis area for two years after college before going to seminary, 03 to 05. Uh, Christy and I, first years of marriage, pouring our lives and our hearts into students there. Uh, especially the junior hires, they had our hearts. Senior hires are a little more... Uh, not sure what to do with the new guy. High expectations and they're let down. Junior hires just love you if you love them. A lot of fun. We had a number of junior hires who were just excited about inviting their friends to stuff. And we, we saw kids become Christians. prayed for their families. Um, kids confessing sins. It was, it, was, it was marvelous. We prayed for them. Poured our hearts into them. Wrote them letters when they hadn't been there for a while. And let a use staff in and, and, and loving these kids in the gospel and their families to Christ. Well, this is one of those kids. I think his family had gone to church, however he'd come there. Um, So my first question was, where are you going to church these days? I hesitated, but I was only going to have a moment. I was here to meet with Mike. He was excited to tell me, and I was excited to hear. I think the feeling was mutual. Made my day. took me a minute to get my footing again to talk with my buddy Mike. I just had to tell him the story of those years that warmed my heart Here's the point: the welfare of the flock is why shepherds become shepherds, not the, not for the badge, not to be known as a shepherd, but to shepherd. The reward is in the welfare of the sheep. They are our crown. So, on behalf of your elders, on behalf of your elders, you are our joy and crown. You're why we study and preach, why we counsel, why we pray. You're in our minds when we plan these services. You're the reason we meet each week before the workday to pray and to discuss the scriptures and the needs of the body. We do not complain about you or look down on you or use you or manipulate you. You're the reason we are painstakingly careful with who is asked into eldership and given to you for approval. You may have heard the phrase, ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. I hate that phrase. I get it. People are hard. I get it. I get it. But there's no joy without them. There's none. The people are the point. The people are the crown. And you are ours. Persecution, separation, and Satan are all pain. Paul's example means it's fine for us to say that. But the return of Christ will be all gain. So what are we waiting for? Deliverance from the wrath to come and the successful completion of our work. And this vision and the successful completion of our work shapes our ministry. Third, what are we waiting for? We are waiting for the presentation of our hearts to God. The presentation of our hearts to God. You've heard about management by walking around. Management by walking around. Oh, that's a good idea. You can't manage well just behind a desk, in front of a screen. you got to walk around and learn stuff. Make better decisions. I have a memory when I was a student at Moody uh, Bible Institute in college, and I worked behind a desk in the PR department. We had this conference every year, and uh, uh, we we had this crazy system of booking hotels for all these conference attendees. And I think the conference had just grown, grown, grown to where this nice gesture became totally insane, uh, and basically it required a full time position. And the new uh, the new exec guy at Moody came down. He stood behind my desk. He goes, "What are you doing?" This is what he did. He goes, uh, "I told him what I was doing." He goes. Uh, any way we can get the hotels to do this? Let me just point them to the hotels. Oh, that's a great idea. Two weeks later, I mean, I was still there. I was part time, but this job was gone. Um, this was this was early 2000s, around 2001, when a lot of nonprofits were struggling, and he was figuring it out. Well, he did management by walking around. Well, in the Christian life, there is a such thing as sanctification by waiting around. Sanctification by waiting around, and it's a productive waiting. Chapter 3, 11 through 13, we read Paul's prayer that concludes the first half of his letter and we see how waiting for Christ shapes our growth. He prays this, Now may the God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father when? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. It's interesting that in the midst of persecution here, Paul does pray, doesn't pray for relief from persecution. He does pray that he be reunited with them. But he spends the most time praying for what he wants even more. And to this end, he prays for their love. That they would love each other and people everywhere just as Paul loves them. And he prays for their love to abound for this reason. So that he may establish your heart's blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He wants them to be sanctified, to be set apart for God, to be holy. Love is a means to preparing their hearts to be presented to God. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-12, Paul says if you're going to be holy and blameless at Christ's coming, you're going to need to grow in love. And here's what he says. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders, and be dependent on no one. Back in that section there, you get a little bit of the context. Loving for some of these people would have meant getting a job, and getting to work. Able-bodied people were lazy. And they're depending on people. This is probably part of the reason why Paul was extra careful to work for his own wage and not depend on those he's ministering to for support, lest his motives be confused. These folks are a problem. He gives them those instructions. They need to grow in love if they're going to be ready for Christ to come. And secondly, in verse 1 through 8 of chapter 4, Paul says, if you're going to be holy and blameless when Christ comes, you're going to need to be sexually pure. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. There's a good thing going on here. You keep saying this more and more. You already know this, but I'm telling you, keep doing it. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Here it is. That you abstain from sexual immorality. And that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in the matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. But God has not called you us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives this Holy Spirit to you. Well, there's a lot in here for helping us rightly understand our sexuality as human beings and as Christians before God. But what I haven't seen, what I had never seen in this passage until this last week was how all of this is framed up under, in the context of waiting for Christ's return and preparing to be presented to him. Preparing our heart. Guarding your sexuality has many good purposes. One of them, a significant one, Maybe the greatest one is to prepare your heart for its presentation to God. Purity and holiness. So what are we waiting for? Deliverance from the wrath to come. The successful completion of our work. And the presentation of our lives to God. And this vision of the presentation of our hearts to God shapes our sanctification and our growth. Fourth. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the sound of God's trumpet. The sound of God's trumpet. Now, this is the section that some of you have been waiting for. Some interesting specifics, even down to the sound Jesus will make when he comes. In chapter 4, Paul addresses some unfinished business. It's made for some upset Christians. Upset not in the mad sense, upset in the sad sense. You see, Jesus, Paul had instructed them concerning Jesus' return, taught about some other things. He ends up leaving Didn't have a chance to finish uh, unpacking the doctrine. They're eager for Jesus to return. Then someone dies. What happens to them? That's an unanswered question. So Paul writes, we don't want you, in verse 13 and 15, we don't want you to be uninformed, uh, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, who have died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. This is what we're waiting for. And here's how it, here's how it goes down. Verse 16 through 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will raise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And he adds in verse 18 therefore encourage one another with these words. Now the sound of this trumpet. It means a couple things. First, the sound of the trumpet means God is going to raise the dead. He's going to do this. No need to worry about dead Christian loved ones. God still has a wonderful plan for their lives even under the dirt. He'll raise them from the dead. In fact, they'll meet Jesus first when he comes. And what do we know about the resurrection? Well, just enough to be encouraged. It'll be bodily, it'll be like Jesus is, it'll be the kind that can eat fish and walk through walls. 1 Corinthians 15:35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they do they come? Great right question. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Notice there. Notice there, uh, here, Paul writes about his own death and resurrection. We, He's writing about his own death and resurrection. So, in one sense, yes, Paul expected Jesus to return and the possibility of his return in the lifetime of this church. But he just as well expected he'd, he'd also die before Jesus comes. That's not a frustration for his hope. It's not like... Waiting eagerly for Jesus' return is just lost if he doesn't come. So you can kind of gamble and not wait eagerly for Jesus' return because you're probably going to die anyways. It's been a long time. No, you're going to die and then you'll be raised and you'll meet him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Scripture says. It's true. And you'll also be raised from the dead in a body uh, and you'll meet Jesus in the air on this day. So look forward to it whether uh, it comes in this lifetime or not. The sound of the trumpet means we'll meet God in the air. That means he'll raise the the dead. It means we'll meet, meet him in the air. He says that we'll be caught up with Jesus in the clouds. And the Greek word here is the word from which we get the word you may be familiar with rapture. It has a sense of snatching, a violent taking. We'll meet Jesus in the air on his approach to earth as he comes from in the clouds, just as subjects would meet their king on his approach when returning home from battle. This means the same, This this is very very likely. In fact, I believe that this is actually clearly the same event Jesus is talking about in Matthew twenty four. I only hesitate with my uh, 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 clarity there because this is this is a debated point. So I want to leave room for folks to have different uh, opinions here. But listen to this in Matthew twenty four twenty nine through thirty one. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, Jesus says the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. There'll be tribulation after the tribulation, this will happen. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Some envision this snatching to meet Jesus in the clouds to be an event that takes place before a period of tribulation and before Jesus' final coming. But at least in our text, whatever merit there may be to that in other parts of scripture, at least in our text, I think this is speaking in 1 Thessalonians 4 of precisely what Jesus spoke about himself. The single event. It's almost a reflection Paul is making. If you walk through 1 Thessalonians 4, there's a parallel sequence of events between there and Matthew 24. It's almost like an exegetical pastoral reflection on Jesus' words and warning and prediction. And he continues to describe the event. Paul will pick it up later in his letter. The uncertainty of the time, the command for believers to stay awake and be ready are both in both texts. All right, so if the timeline in these things is a sticking point, if it's confusing, if it's kind of uh, if it's hairy in your mind, the most important thing is not difficult to grasp at all, at all. And that is the sound of the trumpet means we will be with the Lord forever, forever. And this is the main thing about Christ's return, the main thing about it. Whatever you make of the timeline of events, this is where Paul wants the focus of our waiting, even should we die when he, before he comes, this is still our hope. What we look forward to his coming in the clouds, signaled by the trumpet's sound, and then we'll meet with him, and the air will be changed. Paul's gotten specific about the events of Jesus' return, kinda, kinda specific, a lot of unanswered questions, probably still, but specific enough to be encouraged. Does he get specific about what we're to do in the meantime? Well, yes, he does, and it's almost the rest of the letter His uh, unpacking of that. We've already seen two already since Christ is coming. We grieve with hope. He writes that we may not grieve as others who have no hope. We grieve with hope because of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. That when the imperishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal the immortality. That death is swallowed up in victory. O death where is your victory? O death where is your sting? No fear of death anymore. It's not a scary thing. And through death, we'll always be with the Lord on the other side. We're also, this is low-hanging application fruit, to encourage one another with these words. So, um, the way that this church became famous for waiting for the Son from heaven was by actually waiting for Him and talking about it and preaching about it. And I need to confess that I talk almost not at all about the second coming. Almost not at all talk about the new creation interestingly the new testament keeps pointing us to the event of jesus's return which brings that in i need to talk more about this i need to encourage you and my wife and my kids my christian friends more with the return of christ it's it's a prescription for so much certainly discouragement for urgency and evangelism as we've seen Paul doesn't tell us everything we might want to know about the second coming, but he tells us everything we need to know to be encouraged by it and encourage one another with it. So with these words, we encourage one another. But two more things while we wait. Two more things while we wait. We stay awake. We aren't sure when he's coming. That's on purpose. God isn't getting his ducks in, ducks in order, uh, trying to figure out what he has is going to go down. No, he knows. He just hasn't told us. Uh, and Probably so we wouldn't set the alarm and take a spiritual nap until, uh, you know, 20 minutes before or a year before or something. First Thessalonians 5, 1 through 10. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brother, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, the, uh, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet of hope of salvation." For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So we grieve with hope, we encourage one another with words of Christ's coming, we stay awake and we get our spiritual houses in order. You know, people who are on call, maybe this is you, you work at a hospital, people who are on call have a certain way they have to live on call. They got to be ready. They build their day around this. What is where? They got a bag ready, maybe the car's ready. Uh, they don't get too far away because they got a certain amount of time to get there. Specific lifestyle shaped by this. And here, toward the end of the letter, Paul soaks us in commands. I mean, it's like a blanket of commands. He gets out. Uh, I mean, in drumming, this would be staccato singles. You know, it's loud bullet points of commands and all of this all this punchy commands all of them needed all the memorable and all of them to help us get ready get our spiritual houses in order we have commands for our relationships to leaders verse 12 we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work to be at peace among yourselves we have commands for our relationships with one another Verse 14, And we urge you brothers to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And we have commands for inward and corporate worship. Verse 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Get your spiritual house in order, he's saying. So what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the trumpet of God to signal Christ's coming. And fifth, and this one's short, we're waiting for the certain completion of our salvation. The certain completion of our salvation. Paul concludes the body of his letter with a prayer. This is always a hint as to what his main point was all along. Verse 23 of chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He has just bludgeoned them with commands for how to be ready for Christ's return. To stand blameless at his coming. But at the end of the day, our blamelessness is found in Christ. And our sanctification, whatever we arrive with on that day, will be all owing to him. And with that, Paul closes his letter. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers like that. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so we have read his whole letter. We have kept the oath. May God grant its full effect for our encouragement and the encouragement of our hope as we wait for his son from heaven together. Let's pray. Father, in hell of heaven, we repent of not waiting on your son from heaven, not thinking about this, not talking about this. Pray that we would more, with your help, with the help of your spirit through this book in our hearts and in the life of our church, to look more longingly, more expectingly, and with more certainty and resolve to the coming of Jesus Christ again in glory and with his saints. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.